Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles and open to Philippians, the letter of Philippians this morning, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We continue our study in the letter of Philippians, looking at joy. And I'm going to roll my sleeves down so that it doesn't look like I'm doing manual labor. We'll do spiritual labor here this morning. Philippians 3, we're going to be in verses 12 through 21 this morning, and we're going to look at pressing on to the upward call of God. Let me begin by reading the text for us this morning before we move forward with our message. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Paul, in the first 11 verses of chapter 3, makes some pretty high marks towards the end in the last few verses he says that I may know him and and then he describes that the power of his resurrection and sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like Jesus and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead and after those he immediately follows it up with these verses that we read in verse 12 13 and following and, and he has a clarifying statement, basically, that syncs those verses 8 through 11 with what he is now saying with the, the practical nature of daily life. He's bringing us into that. He, he's not saying that he thinks he already has the full measure of God's resurrection power. He's not claiming that he's experienced the perfection of God's power in his life. He's not claiming he has the full knowledge of God now. Just the opposite. But he is saying this, that because of what he knows about God, all of what is said is true and will be true. So if you just think about that for a moment, 
you come to realize that the grand statements of eternal truths that he makes in verses 8 through 11, Paul doesn't flinch one iota of backing down from what he said. He said, just because it's not true right now doesn't mean it won't be true. And so he presses on to pursue this upward call from God. What is that upward call? It's a a more complete knowledge, a, a moving closer in his daily walk with what he knows to be true of his eternal promise from God. And so he says, I press on for more Jesus in my life. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment because in one thing I like to do, this isn't important to y'all, but I'm going to put my watch back on. I don't use it. I just like to wear it. And those who know me best are most nervous by that statement. I want to pause here for a moment because I, I need to frame our thinking about everything that we're going to talk about this morning. And I need you to walk with me through a couple of questions, and then I'm going to answer those questions. But here's the first question. How is it that a person can be so sure of what they knowingly do not know about all that they know? I know. Hang on. The spinning will stop in just a moment. How is it That a person can be so sure of what they knowingly do not know about all that they know. This is what Paul is addressing in these verses. How is it that a person can be so sure to say that what they know of God is not all there is to know of God? But that even of all that they do know of God, they know they've not yet experienced it but one day will perfectly and completely experience it. Have a perfect knowledge of it, if you will. These are the questions that Paul is driving us to pursue and to answer today. And I want to give you somewhat of a functional definition of this upward call of God in Jesus Christ because I believe this is what Paul is pressing us towards. Here's what he says. Because of Jesus Christ, I know that I know God. But I also know that all that I do know is not all that there is to know. And I know that I have not experienced all that there is to experience of all that I do know, let alone what I do not yet know. So I press on for more Jesus. You know, statistic a number of years ago that I came across stated that the average individual uses roughly 10% of their brain capacity. Now, that number may have shifted some in more recent research. I'm not sure. Uh, I think if we you know, just did a quick research of it today and could accurately measure it, I think some of you, you'd be up in the 12 to 13 percentile points. I mean, you're sharp. And then there are others of us who spend so much time on social media, we'd be dipping down into 5 to 6%. You know, it just kind of drags you down, right? Like, check out, it's not getting engaged, the mental firing is not happening. But what Paul is driving us towards in this multiple meaning use of the word know is to say this, what we know to be true of God is the reason we can be sure and confident to press on. 
What we know to be true of God is the reason that we can be sure and confident to press on. I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago this the spring cavern that they are exploring down at Roaring River State Park. And when I first mentioned it, the article recorded that they had, divers had gone down to 340-something feet, and, and, uh, and that was further than they had ever been in the spring before, and they still could not see the bottom of it. And they were amazed at this. That was several weeks ago, and they're continuing to pursue it. Two more articles have come out since then. One, they had surpassed the former record of like 451 or two feet, still no bottom. A third dive, or the next dive, they had gone beyond 470 feet down. There was still no bottom in sight. It has become the deepest known spring in the continental United States, right here in southwest Missouri. We're not surprised. That's just one of many glories in southwest Missouri. But it reminds us of this. And what Paul is saying of everything that we've known of God and, and in every depth that we've plunged to explore him and just to enjoy the presence of him, everything that we know of him, we know we don't know it all. We know that we've not experienced it all, but we know what we know. And because of that, we're going to keep diving deeper because we haven't seen the bottom. You see, what we know is justification. The Bible teaches us this, that, that, that what we know of God, we know may not be all of God, but it's enough of God to be saved. There is nothing in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the whole counsel of God's word that in any way causes it to be insufficient for the salvation of anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we do know, but what we also know is that we will experience not only completely and fully, but perfectly one day this knowledge of God when we stand face to face in our glorification of our salvation with Him. And friends, what I want you to walk away with today is this. Christ followers press on in life by faith to pursue this upward call of God in Jesus Christ to know Jesus Christ as Lord. We, we press on because there is a call upon our life. There is a compelling force. There is a compelling love, energy, power within us that is calling us forth. And for that, we press on to know the fullness of Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 tells us a very interesting thing about God. That the secret things of God are his. That that's that whole understanding of reality that is beyond us. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's confounding. It's, it's, it's so much more than what we know of him. Those are his things. That divine secrets that he keeps because it's his will. But the things that he has revealed to us, those are ours. And they are ours to take hold of. And to pursue him through them. And so today in these verses I want us to see three reasons why Christians press on to pursue the upward call of God for more Jesus in their life. 
Three reasons I'm hoping that compel us, that move us to pursue more Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've never come to a point in your life where you've put your faith in Jesus, repented of your sins, and received the forgiveness and cleansing that he offers, I hope that these become for you compelling reasons why you should believe and why you will believe today and come to saving faith in God through Jesus Christ. You see, the reason Paul knows as he introduces here in verse 12, is our first reason to press on. Christians press on because of a compelling motivation. A compelling motivation. What does Paul say? Because Christ has made me his own. Paul acknowledges that he has not experienced all that he knows of God. He has not obtained all that there is to obtain. He's not in any way, shape, form, or manner claiming that he is perfect. But instead of causing him to question God, in other words, not God not answering every question, every concern, or not directing every turn of life the way he wanted to, he didn't allow that to cause him to walk away from God, but rather, rather to fuel him to run harder after God for this one reason. Jesus had made Paul his own. That's what he tells us. He says at the end of this verse, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. If you take notes in your Bible, you should circle that phrase to make it my own Because he has made me his own and draw a line between the two. One is the compelling motivation for the other. What Christ has done for us is the fuel, the compelling motivation for how it is that we live after walking after him. The New International Version takes those phrases, make it my own, made his own. And they use the terms, I have been taken hold of, there I live my life, or I take hold of Christ because I have been taken hold of in my life by Christ. You see, Paul's whole life is lived to pursue more Jesus in his life because of what Jesus has done for his life, taking hold of him in salvation. You know, back in the day when I was growing up, and let me, let me just tell you, when anything starts with that phrase back in the day, it's going to be good. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, what is to follow, it just, it, it, you need to give your attention to it. Because back in the day is always a good thing. But back when I was growing up, parents would take hold of their children. Are you with me now? They would yank you up, is what we called it, by the arm. It is a miracle that these two things are still attached to me after the childhood. And I'm telling you, I didn't get yanked up near as many times as I should have. It usually occurred when you were in trouble, sometimes when you were in danger, though I can never remember a time it happened in danger. I can't forget all the times it happened when I was in trouble. I was pulled out of church service, which is typically the setting of when it occurred, more times by someone else's mother than my own. My father would sit on the, back in the day, you know, the preacher would sit on the podium during all the songs, right? And my mother played the organ, so she was over there. The only offensive strategy strategy she had for making me behave was fire coming out of her eyes that would shoot across the entire congregation and nail me, telling me, stop doing that now. 
right? I mean, I could hear it as clear as day. But there were moments when the fire coming out of the eyeballs was not enough. And she would recruit all of my friend's mothers. You just yank him up if you need to. I had one friend's mom who would go immediately past the arm for the earlobe. And friends, let me tell you something. She would seize it and twist it. It's like she would lock it and load it. I mean, by the time she did that, there was not an ounce of energy nor an end of my body that was not absolutely directly tuned in to what she was about to say. And usually there was a lifting action and a pulling out. She would have me in one hand and her son in the other. He was a deacon's kid, so we got in a lot of trouble together with the preacher's kid, and we would walk down the aisle like this as we exited the service. I'm convinced, absolutely convinced, that there were days we didn't do anything wrong, but visitors would come to service and they might have kids, and we just needed to let them know how kids were to behave in church and what would happen if they didn't, so they'd just take us out as an example before anything broke loose. Now, if y'all don't know my family, there may be a little bit of hyperbole and exaggeration in this. Not much, but a little bit. I can remember one time I was on the back porch at my grandparents' house with my cousins. And uh, there were eight or 10, maybe 11 of us out there. And our youngest cousin, I was probably 10 years old. Our youngest cousin was two, maybe three. And we're all out there having a good time, having a family gathering. And, and all of a sudden, he begins to choke on a cube of ice. And we didn't know what to do, so we normally just stared at him. You know, thinking the whole right things to think. Well, this is the last time we're ever going to get to see our cousin. Here he goes. You know, this is it. And I mean, fear is strickening as he can't get airflow. Well, about that time, his mother, my aunt, walks out the back door to where we are at, unbeknownst of what's taking place, but she sees the fear stricken into his face. And it's like automatic. I don't even know why she came out the house except for that innate sense of motherhood. She immediately took two steps over, reached down, grabbed one ankle, flipped him up, popped him three times, and sat him back down and never touched him with two hands. Ice cube gone, everything solved. Now, this is not an exaggeration, friends. We, the cousins, never spoke of that moment again in life. It only became known as the event. But we never crossed my aunt either. Watching her yank him up that day was a life-altering experience. Paul says, I'm living my life to take hold of Christ because he has taken hold of me. The grip of Jesus compelled Paul to press on to experience all that he knew to be true and even to attain towards that which he knew was true but he did not yet know. You see, the more he came to know of Christ, the more he knew there was more to know of Christ and to experience. The deeper he dove into the waters of the grace of God, there was no end in sight. And yet he knew that he had not seen all there was to see, but there was so 
much more. This is the glory of knowing God in Jesus Christ. It's the glory that compels us to press on in our life. Of all that we know, the one thing we most know is that we don't know it all, but we want more. I like to say it this way. We don't own the box that God lives in because God doesn't live in a box, but we know the God who cannot be contained by any box. And that's the one that we live for. And this motivates us to press on in pursuing more Jesus. You see, for the Christian, the glorious knowledge of all that is ours in Jesus Christ is not a full reality now. But that does not mean that in any way it is unsure or uncertain. Do you know that? And so because of this, because of the hold that he has on our life, we, we press on to take hold of him. You see, friends, if Jesus doesn't have enough of you to command all of your attention, he doesn't have all he wants, and he doesn't have all that he is worthy of. All of you. Today, he wants to take hold of. He wants to make you his own. And he wants you to take hold of him to make him your own. And so I ask us, Christian, are you pressing on to take hold and to make Christ your own? Are you here today and you've never been taken hold of by Christ? You've never known what it means to come into a knowledge of or a relationship with Jesus Christ by putting your faith in him and repenting of your sins, but accepting and receiving his atoning work on the cross for you and allowing him to forgive you of your sins and to wash you clean of all of them. He's done that for you you'll put your faith in him this is our compelling motivation that presses us on to the upward call of God Jesus took hold of and made you his own well as we've learned in this study Paul acknowledges that this pursuing more Jesus is a process he's taught us about the process but he's acknowledging here this continues as a process and 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 it's not one, though, that we passively sit by and wait on. And this is what brings us to our second reason for why Christians press on. Because of a clear mindset. A clear mindset. Jesus sets us free to pursue this upward call. He sets us free. You see, Paul gives one thing I do. I, I do this one thing. So he is establishing the priority of his life in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. He's already given us the one thing, the priority in previous chapters. But here he's talking about the practical functioning on a daily basis in our walk with him. And it has a three-part pattern. He says, forgetting and straining, I press on. And this pattern proves so helpful and functional for us. It's, it's an understanding of what it means to live a life of repentance. You see, repentance is when we acknowledge Jesus Christ for who he is, sent from God, what he did, died on the cross, was buried and rose from the grave, and ascended into heaven where he sits and lives and rules and reigns today at the right hand of the Father. 
So we acknowledge that, we confess that, but we also confess the sin of our own heart and of our own life. Not only the actions that are wrongful against God's word, but the very nature of sin to which we are all born in. And we confess those things, and in receiving Christ by faith, we apply his atoning work on the cross that satisfied the wrath of God, Romans tells us, and appeased him so that all who are found in Christ are no longer under the wrath of God, but now walk in the love of God. It is applied to our life. We are forgiven when we stand before God. We are cleansed in the walking of this life, and that is what Paul is defining for us here. But the real potency, friends, is not just in what we do, it's in what I just described Christ has done for us. And Jesus sets us free and and he provides a clear mindset. Paul says, this is the way that those of us who are mature in Christ, this is the way we learn to think about our relationship with God, to focus on pursuing him. Look at what Paul says. Let's break it down just a little bit. He says he forgets what lies behind. What is it that Paul is forgetting? Well, there's a number of things he's forgetting. First of all, he's forgetting anything that prevents, that deters, or that hinders his focus on Jesus. And that begins with every stain of sin he carried because he had not been forgiven, because he could not cleanse himself. Paul says, listen, I couldn't do anything with my own sin, and neither can you. There is no amount of sacrifice, no type, means, or measure of sacrifice that you can do to appease God. All you can do is all you must do. That's repent, turn from your own doing, and by faith accept Christ's doing for you. Hebrews 12.1 tells us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Friends, sin is a weight on the whole being that entangles us to drag us down from God who is calling us up. It's most prevalently experienced in the guilt and the shame that heavies our heart and darkens our mind. That's what Romans 1 teaches us, the darkening of the mind. There is no pursuing Jesus with the weight of sin and the darkness of sin continuing to remain in us. That's the first thing we forget. The second thing we forget is we forget any claim of self-righteousness that reduces or diminishes our need for Christ. You say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a... I mean, I'm not a terrible person, but I'm not a great person. You know, we can find people who are better than us by our acknowledgement, but we can find those other people too that are worse than us, right? And you see, we play this game on the moral uh, 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 spectrum with God of how good we are at times and how not so bad we are at other times. But the fact of the matter is, that's all on a horizontal comparative sphere in this world, and it makes no difference in the vertical sphere of our standing with God. There's no argument. Romans 1 tells us before God, we are without excuse. Nothing plays. 
So we forget any claim of self-righteousness that makes us think in some way our need for Christ is not as great as some people's need for Christ or that because of what we've done, God looks upon us with more favor than he would someone else. But there's a third thing that we must forget here and track close with, closely with me on this. This may be the one that trips so many up in our daytime and culture. We forget also personal success that threatens to steal God's glory. Personal successes, legitimate ones, that threaten to steal God's glory. You say, well, what would that be, Pastor? I mean, in the natural state of who we are, our abilities, whether in thinking or achieving physically, or our successes, our accomplishments, whatever they are, we do not allow those to get in the way of our pursuit of Christ. Why? Because we recognize that God is the origin of all, that he created us. And the way he created us was with a purpose for his glory, not our glory. And that innate desire to celebrate our successes, even to raise them above God's provision in salvation, has a potentially deceiving effect upon us. So anytime we say, well, God, I've done this, I've done that, and we elevate those things to a point, not so much where we compare them to God to dismiss him, but where we celebrate them to the extent that we forget him. Our successes become our own downfall. You say, well, how should we? If they're really, truly good things, how should we handle them? We offer them to God. God, this is what I've done. And listen, God is pleased. Don't, don't hear me saying, like a parent, a mother or a father is so pleased with the accomplishments of their children. God glories in that. But our glory in that is in his provision to us and for us. And we offer them as thanksgiving and praise to him so that we do not steal any of that from him. You see, this act of forgetting is a refusal to let sin, to let self-righteousness, or even our own successes prevent us from pursuing more Jesus. Pursuing that upward call of God begins by trusting Jesus' work on the cross for your life, by believing in him and repenting to receive his forgiveness and cleansing of sin, and through which he clears our mindset for pursuing more Jesus. That's right, he clears our mindset. Romans 12, 2 tells us that God is transforming us, but how? By renewing our mind. You see, sin fundamentally and initially is a darkening of our mind and our thinking, not only first and foremost about God, but our thinking about ourselves and our thinking about the world and our thinking about everyone around us. And when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and he cleanses us, he begins to remove the darkness and shine the glory of his truth and his light into our life so that we can see clearly to understand. And some of you may ask, you know, I have repented. I'm a Christian pastor. How do I forget? I can't tell you how many people through the years that I've counseled with and prayed with who have this lingering guilt because they can't forget the sins of their past. And here's what I say to you about that. That word forget is a verb that's given to us in the present tense of the original, uh, of the original language. And its meaning for us is that it is an always ongoing action that we practice. That's what present tense means. Like it lives, we forget in the present. 
It's not a one time and it's behind us. It's always before us. You see, Christians never make light of any sin to simply try and forget. Well, God's not worried about it. We can just dismiss that and move it aside. That is all a rationale for a Christian to move into licentiousness, to live in a way they know God has not called them to live. But rather, forgetting is a different application. It is where we don't try to forget our sin, but we apply the blood of Jesus Christ to our, for, to our sin, and we remind ourselves of the gospel that tells us because God sent Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sin, the payment for our sin, our debt to him is paid. And we are set free from that debt. We no longer live under the weight of that debt. Debt. And so when we've applied his atoning work to our sin, we've had it removed from us. We refuse to let it stick again. Satan wants to remind you of those things and wants to make you think that you are as guilty of your sin today as you have ever been. But if you are a Christian and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel, the truth of God's word, that is the glorious light of life that is shining into our mind is telling us, no, you are not. And don't you dare put it back on you when Christ washed it off of you. Because if you are guilty of that sin again, it would require another Christ coming to die. And Hebrews tells us that's never going to happen. He died once for all for the forgiveness of sin. He is sufficient not only to forgive you, but to cleanse you and to wash it away. You just keep forgetting it. You just keep forgetting it. Forgetting what lies behind is a continual practice to clear your mind and your heart to pursue more Jesus. And so when forgetting sets us free, we are able to strain forward. You see, the glory of what lies ahead with Jesus is the power of the gospel that turns us to strain to what lies ahead. That word for strain there, it's not a word where we uh, uh, give ourselves to something that's not possible. It's more of the attuning of the entirety of our being, physical, emotional, mental. Uh, I mean, every aspect of who we are aligned with the work of God going on within us. It's the whole of our being given to push forward. Ultimately, all forgetting becomes more reality of his purging from us, from our past because he is rewriting the future of his redeeming power for us. That's what we're set free to press on towards. He sets us free from every hindrance and every entanglement in order to press on in the rewriting by redeeming power that's taking place within us. Friends, I can talk to you about my sins of the past, and I never want to do that in a celebratory manner but I tell you, I can do that, and there's not one ounce of guilt or shame laid on me. But I've had to learn that. I've had to learn that. It's taken a lot of forgetting in order to be able to speak of those things in a redeeming way. But to not speak of them in a redeeming way steals glory of his power. And so we press on. For this very sake. Pressing on is the consuming focus for a Christ follower every day. There is simply, uh, th this is not simply a direction we go in in life, but rather it's a, he's, he's telling us it's a direction coupled with a desire. 
Like, like it's, it is not only the focus in where we are going, but it is the focus of who we are and giving the whole of our being and getting there. We press on. We run after Jesus with our whole being. It's a passion-fueled pursuit. Yeah, it's coming out of the locker room and slapping the door frame. It's, it's the hype. It's every, it's, it's every, it's attuning the energies of who we are. It's the warm up so that we play the way we practice. It is, it is the attuning of our whole being, trying to tune everything else out so that we can give our whole focus to Him and not letting anything get in the way of that. And we all express passion and desire in different ways. There's no doubt. Some of it's through physical feet. Some of it's through intellectual attunement. Some of it's through emotional understanding. But a, a real Christ follower, listen to me, refuses to pursue Christ without passion. You don't have to wake up in the morning and walk through the house like you're walking into a WWF ring. Woo, here we go, here we go today and wake up the whole house. That may be passion, but it may just be something contrived. Sometimes the most intense moments are the quietest when you sit the stillest with only the word of God in front of you. And all of your energies that are new in his mercies that morning begin to dial in and focus on what he's saying to you. Any lack of desire in Christian, whether in deep recognition of our need for him or a driving conviction to pursue him, ought to be an automatic red flag warning for us that we refuse to ignore. And friends, when we feel we cannot press on, listen to me, I want to say this very tenderly. When we feel like we can't press on, you need to understand you've got a competing priority. You've got something that's holding you back. You've got something that's weighing you down. And listen to me. There are things that come up on us in life, not like sin that we walked into that weighs us down, but the reality of sin in this world, death being one of the most severe of loss that brings grief into our life. And we go, God, how can I move forward with grief and the weight that it brings? And in those moments, it's not a confession of sin, but it is a confession of the sufficiency of the gospel to bring us to where God wants to lead us, to find the sufficiency and the comfort of his grace in the moment of our deepest disappointments and losses. We don't even let those things stand in the way. Oh, there will be many tears shed. There's no doubt about that. There will be much weight that has burdened us down. But we will not allow it to stop us. We forsake the one thing for other things that cloud the mind. And when they do, they make us numb and cold and indifferent to Jesus. And friends, a numb, cold, or indifferent heart should strike us with absolute fear. What is making me numb I say to us today we should be careful of the comforts and the conveniences of our life that have made us casual in our approach to God he is worthy of so much more be careful that yours do not cause your heart to grow lukewarm towards him we press on by a clean heart and a clear mind for the new joy of today. 
And listen, here's, here's where that clean mind comes from. Yesterday's failures do not define you. And yesterday's successes, they may help or aid you, but you recognize in your confession this, they cannot sustain you. They were for yesterday. Give thanks and take on today. Yesterday's sorrows are with me. No, you don't get rid of sorrows immediately. But you can confess they are with me and God may be shaping me through them. He very likely is. We know he is working in the midst of them, but they will not stop me from pursuing Jesus. Yesterday's joys, as sweet as they were and as lasting as a memory it will remain, only serve to remind me of today's new morning mercies that the Lord has promised to me. That's what I'm pressing hard after today. Keeping our mind focused on the upward call of God is essential to stay grounded in our faith. And if our mind gets consumed with ground matters, your faith will lose the glory of the upward call. You know, the world tells us and sin tries to tell us to walk this way and talk this way. The gospel tells us, think this way. And then it enables us to do that very thing. This is how those who are mature in the faith think. Jesus cleanses the heart and clears the mind to set us free to pursue his upward call on our life. The third reason is what I call a commissioned invitation. Verse 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. A commissioned invitation. Christians follow Jesus with others while we await his return. Paul issues this invite to the Philippians to join him in imitating him as he follows Christ. He doesn't want them to become like himself, but to join him as he imitates and, and to imitate him as he is trying to become like Christ. You see, verse 17 is the very heart of our command as Christians to love God and love others. The great commandment, it's the very heart of that performed principally through our great commission to make disciples. Those two aren't two separate things. They are one and the same, friends. And this commissioned invitation that we as Christians live under, we join in together and we extend to all others. This is the very impulse of disciple-making for the Christ followers. This celebration of stirring the waters of baptism today for so many in the room was a celebration of their own stirring when God saved them. But it was an invitation to all of us to remember. And for those of you who've never received his forgiveness to know it today a commissioned invitation you see the invitation call of the gospel to know God through Jesus Christ is the same call to pursue Jesus together with and invite others to join for our whole life and I want you to remember this Paul is writing to a people that he is not with he's not with the he hasn't been with the Philippians in years he hasn't seen many of them in a decade. But he is, he's not inviting them to walk with him because he is with them. But he is inviting them to walk with him as he presses on after Christ. Because this is not only Paul's commission. It's the Philippians' commissions. It's every Christian's commission for the way that we live our life. And this reminds us of two critical remembrances that we have to remember today. Number one, we walk together with other Christians. That's why we talk about 
about life together. We walk together with other Christians because our Lord Jesus commissioned us. Like we live with his commission, his authority given to us to do this. But secondly, who we walk with over the course of life will change because of this commission. Who we walk with over the course of our life will change because of this commission. It won't change that we are walking after Christ, that we are inviting others to walk after Christ, but who we are actually walking with in the sense of being in the presence, it will. Paul says some have been sent out from us, like Paul himself, Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and Titus and Mark and and all of those whom the church sent out There there are godly and gospel-fueled reasons to go out from among. And Paul says, listen, we're still together in spirit, but we haven't been together physically in years. But he also says this, there are others who go out and walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame because their minds are set on earthly things. There's an endless myriad of reasons that people go out, but very few are healthy or biblical. The vital part of growing up in the faith is learning who to watch and who to stop focusing on in your imitation of Christ. This can only be learned through experience. And those experiences often bring us challenge and difficulty and and heartache and grief, as Paul says, with tears, with tears. But in all of this, he reminds that following Jesus is always with others. And it's ultimately never about who you are walking with, but always who you are walking after. There will be people all along the way that walk away. This is ours to address. How? A commissioned invitation to return. Come back. We plead. Please but not to judge. The longer you walk with others to follow Jesus, the more that you will see people drift away, people fall away, people walk away. And it will often bring tears. But what it doesn't and should never do is cause you to follow suit. In my lifetime, maybe, very likely, the last two years, has brought some of the heaviest burden of sorrow for this very point. And we don't think of living as enemies of the cross with something less than being evil and overtly, outwardly that way. But friends, I tell you, lukewarm Christianity is an enemy of the cross. Passionless pursuit of Christ is a false testimony of his worth. And do not sit comfortably today and think that because you showed up, you've done enough. It is not about what you have done. It's about what Christ has done. And it is about you responding to him in faith because of what he has done for you. Christ followers stay faithful to pursue Jesus with others, always inviting others to join for more. Jesus, maybe you've had a friend drift away or walk away. In this season that was so easily to be easy to be away. I want to challenge you. Your commission is to return to them an invite of return to the church, to Christ, to his saving grace. 
He waits for you. Christ followers, stay faithful to pursue Jesus. To press on in life by faith and pursue that upward call of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's pray.